Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit apertureHub.co. Today, we have a special episode for you on how the COVID-19 pandemic will affect the future of work and entrepreneurship. We are bringing back three of our favorite guests, Nicola Collin, co-founder and director of The Family, which is a platform for European entrepreneurs, Letitia Vuitton, renowned writer and speaker on the future of work, and Ian Stewart. He is back for a third time, and he is executive in residence at the International Institute for Management Development. Ben interviews them separately, beginning with Nicola, who talks about why this pandemic is so different from other crises like terrorist attacks and recessions. He also goes into why the stock market is currently doing okay, at least as of this recording, even though the unemployment rate has skyrocketed. And he and Ben talk about what a safety net could look like for the entrepreneurial age. Letitia continues the safety net conversation going into how much are we going to continue to value and appreciate proximity workers in the future? We love them now. Are we going to continue to show them the love after this pandemic? And what about new protections for freelancers? What are we going to see in that space? Letitia, who taught American studies and English for 10 years, also goes into a really interesting discussion on Roosevelt and how his New Deal helped pull the U.S. out of the Great Depression and what the chances are of something similar happening in the U.S. today. I'll give you a spoiler spoiler alert. Things are not looking good. Letitia ends by talking about how companies need to act today if they want to succeed today, but then also in the future after the crisis ends. And Ian picks up the leadership question, answering Ben's question, is this a time to be brave and contrarian or is it time to just keep everything going as normal as possible? Is China a safe haven for investors? How is the pandemic affecting U.S.-China relations? And the perpetual question, when will China become the largest economy in the world? And is that even the right question to be asking? At the very end, we will circle back to Nicola for his closing snapshot vision of how the pandemic will accelerate the transition to digital entrepreneurship. Enjoy the show. Nicola, would you say one of the biggest differences between the corona crisis and some of the other major crises over recent years, would you say the major difference is that there is no global leader? The United States led the response to the financial crisis. The United States led the response to 9-11. And this, and you see very much the We've had this sort of balkanization of responses, right? Because, you know, the UK was going for herd immunity. Italy was in lockdown. The United States, at least initially, wasn't taking this very seriously. And, and we lacked that sort of coordinated global response. So the US is a country that I've studied for a very long time. I'm passionate about it. I've traveled there a lot. And I read a lot of books about its history, especially. What I find is different this time. Uh, so one thing that's different is that they have Trump and he's a very unusual kind of leader to have in these uh, difficult times. But another thing that's very different is that the U.S. is used to respond to crisis by doing two things. Uh, one is send troops abroad to invade Afghanistan or to invade Iraq and topple the regime there. 
or Vietnam, or sometimes it works, sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't. But sending troops is easy for them because they have the uh, mightiest military in the world. The other thing uh, that they do usually is that they close their borders, uh, which is easily done when you're the US because they're isolated at the other end of the world. They have two oceans bordering them. They only have two um, borders to close effectively, one with Mexico and the other with Canada. And so basically 9-11 was they did both things. They sent troops to Afghanistan and then they closed the borders to prevent anyone from entering uh, their territory. For the financial crisis, well, they gathered a small group of politicians and experts and economists in the treasury building in Washington, D.C., and that was basically all you had to do to solve the crisis. You had to take big, difficult decisions, but uh, in, in material terms, organizing to respond to the crisis was quite easy. This time, uh, none of these works. Sending troops will not solve the problem. Closing the borders won't solve the problem because you have sick people at home on your territory on U.S. soil, and simply gathering experts in a building won't solve the problem because it's all about, uh, after two weeks, we know what should be done, but it's all a matter of implementation now. And, and implementation um, on U.S. soil at that scale with so much disruption for the, uh, the way people live in the U.S. is unprecedented. Uh, I don't see a president of the U.S. being confronted to a, such a crisis at home, um, and they are not equipped as a government and as a country to respond to that. So, so you could argue that it's unprecedented and would be difficult for any U.S. institution to manage. But in addition to that, you've also got the fact that Donald Trump has been gutting, you know, the the institutions that would be most able to respond. Right. So, anybody who's read, I think. Is it got the fifth risk? The um, yes, Michael Lewis. Yeah, the Michael Lewis book. I mean that. You know, I I I, um, I read it when it came out, and I'm, I think what I might do is reread it because it's so it was so sort of um, prescient in in highlighting the fact that what was happening, you know, was almost going unnoticed and would go unnoticed until it, you know yes. all these institutions were suddenly needed, which is exactly where we are now, is it not? Well, yes, but. The fact is, so I'm French and you're British, so we both come from countries with a very long tradition of strong and respected civil service. And the reason why we, well, or we used to have, maybe we don't have them anymore, but very efficient and effective civil servants is because we were countries confronted with many threats and we had a colonial empire to manage. Uh, both France and the UK had a global empire to manage, which requires a lot of skills and a lot of uh, capacity. To, um, to You really need that to, to manage such an empire. Uh, in comparison to the French and the British, the Americans never had a very effective government when it comes to implementing policy at home. They've always, uh, they've had for quite some time, a very effective military. But when it comes to implementing policy at home, the US government is already lagging far behind those of other Western countries or China or Singapore, uh, for that matter. 
and they're used to it and they don't really care because most of the government uh, is done at the local or state level. And most of the problems that Americans have on a day-to-day basis are solved by the private sector or by lawyers or by... Uh, but but it's a striking example is that you can't really uh, manage your taxes without relying on a tax advisor in the US because the government won't help you do that. They don't have the, the resources, they don't have the people uh, to to be able to respond to every question that every individual taxpayer has. So that's their tradition. Their tradition is that of a limited government um, and a government that um, nobody really needs in normal times. So n- no one cares about the government being underfunded or too small for this very big and large uh, country to manage. Um, and it's only when such a crisis happens that they realize, oh, um, maybe we should have the same kind of government that the French or the British or the or Singapore has. Um, but you can't uh, catch up in two weeks on, on doing that. It's it, it's a whole tradition and a, and, and a whole cultural uh, matter. Donald Trump was you know underestimated the threat, and then he's had some very public you know disagreements with governors. It doesn't really seem to be affecting his poll ratings too much. Do you think Donald Trump will still be reelected in November, or do you think this has materially changed the odds? He's been putting at like 40% approval ratings forever. And whatever he does, it never goes down. And so people say, oh, he's still popular because he was that popular when he won the election uh, four years ago. And so he could do it again with such a low approval rating as a person and as a leader. Uh, But I think... What I've been interested in is how law is how law is polling in battleground states like Michigan or basically the Rust Belt, where he made a lot of promises about jobs coming back, uh, factories reopening, uh, supporting people, um, etc. And those promises have not been kept, and people are feeling the pain. And so they've probably already decided for many of them that they won't vote again for Donald Trump this year, which will make a huge difference because he won Michigan with 10,000 votes, I think, in 2016. And so it doesn't take much for him to lose Michigan and then lose the presidency, even though he's faring well in southern states and other conservative states. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, this isn't just from a U.S. perspective, but how bad do you think the economic consequences of this pandemic will be? Because I guess it's a really difficult question to answer because we know we have no idea how long it's going to last and so on. But would you say that people are still underestimating how profound the impact will be? I think we're underestimating it clearly. I'm not really sure what people are expecting in, expecting in terms of impact. Uh, but clearly, after two weeks, people look around and say, oh, life seems to go on. I'm stuck at home. Uh, in many cases, I still have my job. I still get my uh, pay every week or every month. Uh, and probably 
life will go back to normal. But what's normal? Like if you reflect on the 10 years that we've gone through after the financial crisis, yes, most of us did find, um, did get back a job and uh, recovered a reasonable standard of living. But everything everything has changed in a way like politically economically financially it's all it's the rise of china it's brexit it's trump so we might have to expect radical consequences to the crisis we're currently going through we just don't know what it will be about why is the stock market not you know, more materially affected. So, you know, the initial reaction was quite severe, but actually it's been ticking back up. And if you take the NASDAQ, for example, I just I just looked. So this, I, I better timestamp this, right, just so we're not completely wrong. Cause, so it's the 9th of April and the NASDAQ is down about 18% versus its peak. You know, in a, in a world where we're potentially facing sort of, you know, 30% unemployment, how do you mm-hmm. reconcile those two statements? I wrote a long piece about the stock market to try and explain why it was faring so well, while whilst many people think that the economy is going in the wrong direction. Uh, I think there's a decoupling between um, stock market investors and most people. Uh, we, we're way past the time when everyone was investing in stocks. That's not true anymore. Uh, most of the money that's invested on the stock market is invested by large institutional investors. And the main reason why it's faring so well, uh, even in the presence of such problems, is that those people simply don't know where to invest their cash. They're afraid of investing it in tech companies because they don't understand innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and an economy that's driven by increasing returns to scale. Uh, they're afraid of investing it in uh, bonds because bonds bear no interests in a low in, uh, interest rate uh, economy. They're afraid of investing it in commodities and in, uh, they're afraid of investing it in emerging markets or any market that's not the US because they prefer to invest at home. And so what are you left with when you want to invest in stocks in the US? Well, it's a lot of investors chasing the same stocks. And what do you do if you have too many investors willing to buy the same stocks? Price, price, prices go up regardless of the fun- fundamentals and the context. But I think that's what's happening now. Uh, it's, and I suppose it we should be have the quantitative easing that's taking place as well, right? And all the yes, yes, it, yeah. it's it's brought so much money in the hands of so many large investors that they don't really know how to what to do with all that money. And we should bear in mind as well that because the government and the central banks are pumping pumping up so much money in the economy as of now, um, many people expect it to trigger inflation. And so you don't want to hold cash if inflation is coming around the corner. You you would rather have that cash invested in stocks and count on an upside with stocks as opposed to cash. But it's the same as not what is true of the stock market is not true of venture capital at the moment, right? Which is we, we are seeing um, capital exiting from venture capital and. 
it's making it harder, right? Particularly to invest in early stage companies. So mm. what do you see as a sort of, you know, the short to medium term prognosis for venture capital? Uh, in venture capital at the moment, it's that it's very difficult to invest at the late stage because at the late stage, valuations are extremely dependent on the, on the state of the economy. And now the economy is, a, is in very bad shape. And so you can't really put a price on a late stage startup. And so that prevents late stage investors from deploying capital. And because late stage investors don't deploy capital, early stage investors prefer to hold on their cash and keep it to further fund the startups they're already a shareholder of. Uh, and so if you're a new startup and you try to uh, pitch an early stage investor, they'll probably respond, okay, but because no late stage investor is investing at the moment, I won't invest in your startup. I, I keep my capital to deploy in my existing portfolio. Uh, so until the economy goes back on its feet in terms of predictability, uh, we won't probably see the, the, the engine uh, starting again. But on the other hand, uh, we're already in a period where venture capital is diversifying in terms of how it deploys capital. More and more players are learning to um, design debt instruments to yep. finance tech companies that are, in fact, part tech companies, part traditional companies. Uh, and so what I expect is that it will probably put a traditional venture capital to a halt, but then create room for designing hybrid instruments that are, um, that mix venture capital with more traditional business financing. Do you think the government could take a bigger role in, in funding startups, at least in the interim period where fund, funding has dried up? The new generation of tech companies that was born right after the financial crisis 12 years ago, um, the two flagship companies of that generation are Uber and Airbnb. And so there's a, there are a lot of discussions about what explains their success. Is it the macro context or um, the technological wave that was the iPhone and smartphones in general? or exceptional founders that were made more uh, grittier by, um, by the crisis. I don't know. I think the three factors come into play, which would lead investors these days to look at companies that not only benefit from the macro context, um, but also surf a wave of technological change and then, um, are led by exceptional founders that are made even more ambitious by the current context. What we're seeing is radical change already happening because of the lockdown in education, healthcare, real estate, housing. Uh, I think people will reconsider their choices. I think um, fringe options when it comes to educating your children will become more mainstream, like homeschooling or Part-time homeschooling. You don't think people have been put off homeschooling by having done it for a few weeks and, and trying to juggle it with everything else? Well, I think some people will be put off, but others will realize that 
it provides them with more freedom. It is quite liberating to be, um, you know, sort of unfettered from a curriculum. You know, like if yes. one day you just, your children express an interest in something and you can spend the rest of the day, you know, researching that particular subject, that's much freer and more interesting for the kids than, you know, sticking to a rigid curriculum. But it is very, very tiring and for the parents. But what, what will be happening in those spaces, what, what I don't predict is that uh, I don't predict that every children, every kid will be homeschooled soon uh, or right after the crisis. What I predict is that the period that we're going through, which will last for weeks or months or more, uh, will provide an opportunity for parents to reconsider uh, uh, educating their children, will provide an opportunity for teachers to reflect on their own um, job, uh, opportunities for entrepreneurs to make their case that they, they can provide a different approach to educating children. And then when the crisis is over, most of those will go back to normal. But some people will keep in mind what they've learned during this period. And investments will have been made in new infrastructures, new products. And those investments will lead to a higher productivity, which will make it possible to lower the prices and to make the value propositions more attractive. So we have that virtual circle that will lead everyone to reconsider and and uh, and the entire school system will reach a new stage uh, probably with more cu customization flexibility more of an online experience and so on and that will happen in education obviously in healthcare because the healthcare system will be profoundly transformed by the current crisis with telemedicine becoming more of the yep. norm as opposed to uh, being uh, the exception and also housing i think will be disrupted because people will reconsider um, where they live and how they live um, and the, the kind of home or apartment they inhabit you're saying almost like what people were predicting about the sort of post autonomous vehicle world is now going to crystallize because if we work from home we might as well work in the most attractive surroundings we can Mm -hmm. Because we don't need to be very close to other people, because there is, you know, much less sense of office work. Exactly, the, uh, I'm, I'm sure many people are experiencing working from home. Are realizing both that working from home make, make makes them more productive, more creative, whatever, and realize that if they work from home most of the time or part of the time, they don't need to leave as close to their workplace as before. And so maybe that's the unexpected event that will contribute to solving the housing crisis in large, dense cities. I just want to, I don't think we can have a podcast with you and not talk about the safety net. So for anybody who's listened to this podcast before or follows you, uh, you've written extensively about creating a new safety net for the entrepreneurial age and you know your book was extremely prescient in spotting the need for this new safety net mm. and if the pandemic has done one thing it's it's once again highlighted the absolute need for a safety net for for digital workers because they're so much more precarious mm. are you more confident post-pandemic or or during the pandemic that will 
now take the steps to in- introduce this safety net? Well, I think uh, several changes on the way. One change is that we, some countries and we as a society will probably reconsider what it's about to work in proximity services. Basically, those proximity workers are the only ones that still have uh, whose job hasn't changed much because their nurses are still in hospitals. Uh, delivery workers still uh, still have a job. And also for those who don't work anymore, like in restaurants, restaurants are a powerful lobby. Like, uh, uh, they, they have quite a lot of political clout. And so I don't know of a government that, that isn't helping the restaurant industry as a whole because we expect them to reopen when the crisis is over. And so we don't want uh, all the companies to go down. But in exchange for all that government money that will make it possible for restaurant owners to cope with the crisis, we'll probably ask about how much are you paying uh, your employees and what kind of safety net do they benefit from. Uh, Maybe we could make some progress on that front because those people were left on their own during the crisis. So I think for the first time, we're, we're reconsidering the safety net or the social contract for proximity workers. Uh, for the first time, governments, some governments have been deploying uh, mechanisms to help support self-employed people, uh, self-employed workers, freelancers, and um, platform workers, and so on, which is a first. Uh, and then uh, many, many startups will be uh, lifted up by the crisis and will come up with innovative financial products or innovative approaches to managing benefits or innovative real estate products that will all contribute to um, revealing the new safety net. There's no automatic reason why, why, why we should rebuild the safety net or create new institutions post-crisis. But, but that definitely could be one outcome, right? Because certainly, you know, you see that many of the politicians right now have extra political capital. And yeah. whenever, we, whenever we, you know, have this kind of shared experience, we start to have some empathy for, or more empathy for yeah. various sections of society. So it does seem like an opportunity to, to make some quite radical changes post-crisis. Yeah, it really does. Like thinking about new collective bargaining institutions, if you, if you think of the supermarket workers in France, they very rapidly obtained visibility and the, there was this pressure on supermarket chains to pay them more, to pay them more and make and create new protections for them. So they um, built all those window panes to protect the cashiers from people's droplets. And then they decided they'd pay them a thousand euros more every month, which is not so bad. Yeah. And once the crisis is over, how can you go back to saying, okay, well, you're actually worthless. Let's just cut all this and um, go back to whatever it was before. I think that's not going to be possible because they are united. They went through something, you know, so terrible that they, think in terms of we're in this together, I mean the workers, and will necessarily have more bargaining power and 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 think collectively. Um, so there was this pressure that so Carrefour in France and Leclerc and Auchan, all the supermarket chains, one after the other, they added this this 
special premium um, for workers um, so that they can get paid extra. And I, this hasn't happened in other countries yet, uh, or maybe in a few others I, that I don't know of. But at least it's a sign. It's a sign that in terms of yeah, bargaining, um, something's really hap- happening. And the second thing is that we're understanding that that you know the the role of public services and how crucial they are and how completely helpless we are without those public services. Um, if you think of the NHS, how in normal times it doesn't have enough resources and how in spectacular times the this lack of resources will cost so many thousands and thousands of lives. And there is no politician in the UK tomorrow who can actually who will be able to attack the NHS. Even even Johnson, who is now at the mercy of the NHS, literally speaking. Um, and so the fact that in, in times of crisis, we, we suddenly saw the, the possibility of, you know, boosting those public, public services and their critical role is something that has a, yeah, that will have a, a, a political legacy uh, How beyond the crisis. How do you think that crisis. plays out in the United States? Do you think there'll be more pressure in the United States to create some form of public health care? Well, the, the United States is such a mess, such a mess. Um, I'm not optimistic about the U.S. What I think will happen is a moment of reckoning with this epidemic. That Everything, all the incentives are wrong. All the system is wrong. There's no, you know, there's a... The fact that there is absolutely no safety net um, encourages people with no alternative to continue to work even after they've had the first symptoms of the disease. So the spread will be worse. And then lots of people who cannot even go to a doctor's will, you know, there will be more deaths than in any other developed nation. Um, It's just... I, and then the the crisis, the economic crisis, will also be wor- worse because there is no, there is nothing to cushion the impact of the crisis. And so, even with the two trillion dollar package rescue plan, uh, which seems like a lot, but if that rescue package is meant to compensate for the lack of anything pre-existing. Uh, it won't be enough. It won't be enough to cushion the country from something so deadly that it will be a moment of reckoning. Uh, but I'm I'm very very pessimistic about their ability to do anything before the the the, the yeah before the worst happens. And do you think that because you know the way I sort of see it is we're at this kind of you know this juncture where the US could either you know turn left metaphorically speaking and kind yeah. of push towards creating a proper safety net to prop up the population at large mm-hmm. or it could sort of double down on individualism and it's not clear which way it will go right i think if if you had potentially a different president maybe we might yeah, be more but confident it's, it's I'm, I'm i'm unsure that anything massive or anything radical can be done in the current political context number one the candidate the official democratic candidate now is joe biden and joe biden is not a radical thinker uh, number two there are a, a lot of things that are completely deadlocked um there's the supreme court that is durably conservative and that will strike down whatever ambitious proposal comes out of Congress. 
And that is if Congress is majoritarily in the hands of Democrats after the next election, which is absolutely not sure because, you know, the Senate is also likely to remain conservative. So it's just, um, I don't think anything can be done in the political context, in the American political context today, that will be radical enough or ambitious enough to make a difference. What would the political conditions at the time of the New Deal? Because this does feel like, you know, this could be analogous to the time that led up to the New Deal. Yes, it's interesting. This comparison is very interesting because uh, because Roosevelt had difficulties with the Supreme Court of his time. Uh, he in, did. In, yeah, I remember that. He did. And he came up with a plan that came to be known as the court packing plan. And the idea was to nominate lots of new justices to the Supreme Court because there is nothing in the Constitution that says that you have to stick to nine. Uh, it, it's, it's just tradition. It's it's an unwritten rule or tradition. And he said, okay, let's, they're all old and conservative. Let's appoint lots of new justices and pack the court with friendly, with friendly justices. And that, of course, uh, was uh, very controversial and, and lots of uh, Americans uh, attacked Roosevelt for, you know, being so shockingly radical. And, um, and it, 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 it probably wouldn't have this court packing plan probably wouldn't have been accepted and wouldn't wouldn't have passed but luckily for roosevelt one of these old judges died and he could appoint a new one um and um and at some point there was a turn and because they had felt so much pressure some of the other uh judges sort of changed their minds and started being more flexible uh more liberal and so they um they eventually let the New Deal unfold, but it was a couple of years of very a very very difficult institutional moment and a, a true battle be- between those two branches of power. And I suppose and today the, that's not going to happen because yeah, today the Supreme Court is. I don't see how in a few years the Supreme Court will change. Uh, it's uh, it was designed by the pre by by. Uh, by, con- by the conservatives to be made durably, durably conservative. So when the lockdown is finished, you know, we won't just go backwards to the way it was. And one reason is because, well, first of all, millions of people aren't literally going to be able to go back to work because they don't have work. We're going to have a much bigger appreciation for the proximity workers and, and appreciate how important they are mm. in our day-to-day lives. Including and the, teachers. And, including teachers. Oh, yeah. oh yes. <laughs> those of us that are homeschooling appreciate teachers. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those proximity workers will have more bargaining power. And this, the same applies to many of the public services that we've maybe had underappreciated in the run-up to the crisis. What other ways do you think we won't go back to normal and, and we'll move to some kind of new normal? Well, when it comes to remote work and the digital transition of large organizations that suddenly overnight had to, you know, manage differently, choose different tools to work remotely. So there's no going back to before in terms of um, the flexibility of of work and um, the fact that you can, you know, there's no, you don't need to prove to your manager that you're perfectly able to do uh, to do things without being watched constantly and without being physically present at the office. So I think that's something that will change. A lot more work would be done at home uh, and in co-working spaces. 
Um, and that's it's a small revolution in a way because when we think of workplaces, we usually we usually don't think of the home as a workplace. Um, so that I think that's um, that's a, a big change. And the fact that we think of home as workplace has an impact of how we view housing and how we consider housing policies and housing inequalities. It has an impact for companies on how they think of um, the workspace in general and, and, and ergonomic um, solutions and it you know has an impact on how you protect workers because there are a lot of uh, workers who work from home already and who worked from home before um, who were not necessarily considered in a lot of the institutions that were created for, for office workers or factory workers or field workers. Um, for example, because uh, we talked about, about Amer- we talked a lot about American politics, but for example, um, you know, Roosevelt's 1930, Roosevelt's 1935 Social Security Act did not include domestic workers because these domestic workers were um, the descendants of slaves and for political reasons, it was safe not to include them, uh, so as to have the support of Southern Democrats who were racist. And that's just one example of how domestic workers were never included in the institutions that were created to protect workers. And that's something that's going to change because these institutions include medical supervision, uh, ergonomics, um, and et cetera, et cetera, and social protection, obviously. And so now the home will fully enter the realm of the workspace, the workspaces, and I'm, it'll have a number of, of consequences. Does this, do you think if everybody can work from home or have more flexibility post-crisis, do you think this changes the relative attractiveness of being a full-time employee versus being a freelancer? I'm, I'm, I'm certain that it does. I'm certain that it does. And it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting development that's happened over the last few weeks in the UK as well as in France, for the first time ever, there's been talk of creating new protections for the freelance workers who will lose who will lose all their gigs and all their revenues because of the crisis. It's millions of yeah. new freelancers who suddenly will find themselves without any revenue. It's um, more than five million in the UK and something like that in France, a little less, I think. Um, and these are workers who could have been salaried workers under different circumstances. And the French government, in the rescue package that was created, created a new unemployment insurance, a crisis unemployment insurance for freelance workers. That's a first. And then the British uh, chancellor did the same, which is even more surprising in the British con- context. That's that's less um, well less protective of workers than the, than, the, than, the, than the French tradition. The Chancellor announced that, uh, you know, new protection would be created for all freelancers um, up to £2,500 a month um, and uh, on, the, on the basis of, you know, whatever you earned on average before that. And that will create a form of precedent. Uh, what's obvious is that there is a misalignment between workers and companies now because companies faced with this unprecedented crisis realize they want most of their costs to be variable. They want fewer long-term salaried workers, for example, in France, where, you know, you're not supposed to, you you haven't, you you can't um, lay off people easily. 
They want fewer offices with, uh, you know, fixed costs that can actually uh, kill them uh, and, and burn all the cash that they have left. Whereas workers, on the other hand, want as many protect protections as possible. They will want to return to more traditional forms of employment that provide more protections that have that come with a better bundle. They want unemployment benefits. They want um, they want health benefits and, and et cetera, et cetera. And because this misalignment is going to be a bigger problem than ever before uh, in the context of this crisis, new institutions in between will have to be created so that the model will look more like Sweden. Companies must be able to lay off people whenever they need to, but people must be protected and helped to find other jobs in the future. And so in between is a better safety net, a better safety net that makes that makes it possible to have a better alignment of interests between companies and people. And do you think it will be necessarily the state that creates those new institutions? Because, you know, if 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 we think about the, uh, I suspect it might be a combination of both, right? Because if you think about the present context, people are, you know, are firing, for want of a different word, they're freelancers because yeah. they can, because they're those that have the least protection, the shortest contracts. But many of the best people are freelancers. Therefore, for yeah. anybody who's willing to take risk at this present time and be slightly contrarian, this is the time to go in and find those freelancers and yes. create some sort of, of organization that, that, that arbitrages, right? That risk yeah. between employers and freelancers. That's true, but it's it's too many people right now. It's a little bit like, um, you know, when you're in an insurance company, it's fine to handle normal risks, but once you have a risk that's as big as a natural disaster, where you have either the entire country or, or an entire region that's completely destroyed, that's not something that one company or one insurance company can handle. It's, uh, it's too big. Only the state is big enough to handle a risk that size. However, you're right for in, in, in most cases, it's a combination of the two that will be most effective. You'll have lots of um, players handling smaller risks, and um, you know the biggest of them all, the natural disaster, the huge crisis. That's something for the state. So, just to return to this, so we're in a situation where you know a small minority of people work from home in the crisis. Now, I don't know what the statistics are, but probably it's a small majority of people are working from home. It's about half and half, actually, or, or one third, one third, one third, one third of people are uh, roughly one third of people are unemployed. One third of all people are um, working outside um, in 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 hospitals or in supermarkets or in, in working on the supply chain, and one third work remotely. Depending on the country, the figures are different, but you get the idea. It's roughly something like that. So, so we've got a situation where a small, a small minority was working remotely, and now it's a third of the working population is yeah. working remotely. So a massive sort of increase from one day to the yeah. next. How do you think people are coping? What do you think are some of the sort of unseen ramifications of that in terms of you know gender inequalities, for example? Yeah, yeah. And then what are your tips? Because you're somebody who's been working from... Mm. Are working remotely for a long period of time, and it's you know it's it's, it's difficult, right? It's difficult. For example, mm. you know we find it's difficult to know when to stop work. For example, in the evening, you know, because yeah. you could theoretically go on until you know until bedtime, right? Yeah. You can start yeah. 
as soon as you wake up. And so how do you create sort of mm. new parameters for, for, for remote work? Well, it's an excellent question because the, the, the tips that are usually given to remote workers uh, are not necessarily valid in today's period when people have their children at home, parents have their children at home, or they have other family members at home that makes it so much harder to find the focus or even the, just the physical space to do their work in normal conditions. So this is, these are very unnormal times for the tips for, you know, for remote workers to, to figure out how to, how to work. So it's more a crisis time and you do whatever works best for you. And parents may need more flexibility because they will work early in the morning, late in the evening if they have young children, or they will work um, in shifts. Uh, if there are two remote workers in the household and the two of them need to work, then you know the mornings will be for the mother and the and the and the and the, the, the afternoons will be for the second parent or vice versa. Or you know they will have to find a system and. Unlike in normal times, it's a system that works for the household. So the, there is this merger, if, if you will, of the private sphere and the professional sphere in a way that we've never experienced before. Because in normal times, you have other institutions like daycare and schools and nannies. And, you know, you have this organization where you, you fit your, you fit your household in, in, in lots of other, with, lots of other players and, and, and a lot more extra outside help. So this is very, very different. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm a bit uh, irritated sometimes by a product, you know, the productivity pieces that we see today about remote work as if it was a normal time, as if it was business as usual. Uh, also, we know that in terms of, um, as you said, you mentioned gender in, inequalities and, in some households, uh, it's like going back to the 1950s because all the chores, all the workload that was more evenly distributed between between the woman and the outside world, uh, nanny, cleaning woman, um, whoever else came for help, is now re-internalized. And you, when you re-internalize it, it's rarely evenly split. So that's like a disaster for feminism. That was the title of, a, of an Atlantic um, piece that was very good. It, it was a coronavirus is a disaster for feminism. So that's one thing. But another is that in normal times, no one would champion lockdown. You know, no one would say it's best when you work not to see anyone ever. Uh, so we know that in terms of mental health, um, we are going to have to cope with, um, you know, extremely difficult, an extremely difficult moment. And it's not about being productive. It's about surviving. So I would say, yeah, the, the usual things that I write about managing scattered teams and how companies with no office, like, GitLab or Buffer or Basecamp uh, have found solutions to help us, you know, do without an office. Those things do not apply today because it's so different from anything we've ever experienced before. And in a way, that's another thing that won't go back to normal, right? Because, you know, you saw, I don't, I don't know how much you saw this, but like a lot of companies, when they first allow people 
or they had no choice, right? But when, when they first were forced to let people work from home, they tried to in, impose normal office hours. And then they figured that, as you said, people were managing multiple different priorities at home. Yeah. And so they had to be more flexible. And so that's another way in which, you know, companies have had to cede more and more control. Yes, um, yes. And that's a positive thing that may happen out of this is that if they make flexibility the new default and if they if there is actually more trust in their management, then it will benefit everyone, even in new normal times, uh, because parents still need flexibility and they still need to be able to handle their workload the way they, they see fit and, and incorporate all the constraints that they have. So that's something positive that could that could come out of this. Um, if you're pessimistic, you may see that a lot of the companies that are forced to work remotely overnight are replicating the managerial culture that was theirs before. And so they basically continue to watch their people and you know they want there's the software you know to to take pictures of the of your workers screen and and verify what they're doing and then you have lots of managers who want to be on zoom all the time and if you're on zoom all the time when exactly are you supposed to do your work or how much flexibility do you have when you're supposed to be in meetings all day uh, on zoom and so I think that there's a big gap between the, the, the companies that have a more flexible managerial culture, more horizontal managerial culture, and those that are still very conservative and basically replicating online the culture, that they, the managerial system that they had um, in, in the, at the office. Ian. I wanted to ask you how leaders, so business leaders, should be responding to this crisis. Now, is this a time to be brave and contrarian, or is this a time to make sure that you steward your company through a difficult time? So I, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a boring answer, and, and, and the boring oh, answer is okay. <laughs> the boring answer, <laughs> which it. <laughs> boring answer, which I think is the right answer, is only if the evidence supports it. To be brave and contrarian, I, you know, it. it um, the trick with most difficult situations, whether you're a kid in the playground faced with someone larger than you, or a business leader trying to deal with the fact that 95% of your revenues have just died, or as is the case for friends of mine around the world today, is to try to look at things relatively unemotionally. It's hard to be um, completely without emotion when people you know are dying. But to try and be relatively unemotional and work out what you can do, it's, it's, it's clarity, it's analysis, but it's also the ability to make a decision relatively quickly. Uh, and in that sense, that's brave. When you have to make a decision when the information isn't clear because you have no choice because your business goes under if you don't, that's the bravery that's necessary. It's just making hard decisions when you have to quickly. Um, I think you don't, you don't do one thing. I, I think the, the efforts to try and make sure that people don't lose their jobs have been admirable in certain areas, but obviously impossible in an airline or a hotel industry where suddenly you have no customers at all. Now, I say impossible. It's not entirely impossible. Mark Haven, a professor at IMD, recently gave us a case study about the car company BYD in China, which overnight, within 24 hours, 
because they had to find something to do with their employees and they didn't want to let everybody off, um, became the biggest producer of face masks in the world. This is a known case study now, but it's only two months old. Then there's, there's another company in China that, that, that I followed that switched from being a 90%, 10% offline retailer, lots of you know, thousands of stores, to online retailers. So they were 10% online and uh, 10% online and 90% offline, switched to 80-20 online offline within 30 days and didn't suffer either the employment losses or the revenue losses that, that people expected. So I, 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 think, I think the bravery is in making tricky decisions at tricky times. Contrarian, only if the evidence supports. Um, and, 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 and try to look at things based on data, not based on um, a just gut feel. And where do you see that there might be room to be contrarian? So where do you see the data points of, or where do you see the opportunities that good leaders prepared to make quick decisions might capitalize on? So that's a very general question. It depends on the sector you're in and the industry you're in, right? So at the moment, the problem isn't so much um, decision-making because the decision-making is fairly clear right now. The issue is data. There's a, if you're looking at markets, people are talking about the difference between a V recovery, a U recovery, or an L recovery. Underlying that are estimates of when we go back to work, when customers start buying things again. I would suggest that one of the things that, that um, managers of retail businesses or managers of consumer business should be doing is trying to work out how much of consumer behavior changes over the next three to six months. Short-term shocks tend not to impact consumer behavior. Consumers tend to go back to doing what they did before. Longer-term shocks, things that last longer, people get used to doing new things in new ways. Maybe they don't go back to doing things the way they did before. And trying to work out now, trying to pass that now and work out what people will do and will they and won't do, how much they will change, how much they won't change, is, is a very interesting question. So uh, I think, I think uh, at the moment, it's more about trying to understand what data there is and what it's telling us before we get decisions. Everybody at the moment is just trying to scramble, um, spend less money, find new customers, keep as many of the employees as you can because it's hard to rebuild teams. Um, it's, it's, it's doing what they can in, in difficult environments. The tricky bit is what happens next and when next is. Is China now a safe haven for investors? China has never been a safe haven for investors. It's always been tough. And this isn't against foreigners or outsiders. It's tough for everyone in China, local Chinese included. It's probably the most competitive business environment in the world. And there's a lot of money from lots of different sources aiming at the same projects. So prices have gone up. It's never been safe. Right now, in addition to that, we have a very clear anti-foreigner sentiment, partly exacerbated by the last couple of years. But it's been there, frankly, pretty much since the arrival of Xi Jinping. So no, it's not a great time for investors in China. But I was thinking more investors from outside China looking for a safe haven for their money. Because China was first into the pandemic, it's first out and the economy is kind of getting back to normal. Is, is this a time for people to look at China with fresh eyes from an investment point of view? So uh, a lot of the conditions that made China a complicated place to invest in are still there. It's still an environment where we aren't terribly sure if they respect the requirements for reporting that, that um, we do in the West. Um, we're still not very sure about how much of actual activity is being reported in the books, what isn't on the books, what... <laughs> what's slightly off book uh, or what's in a separate set of books. So it's, it's uh, and even with public companies, this has been the subject of some debate amongst analysts. So I think that those conditions uh, have always been there. But the second question, I guess, 
is whether or not China really is coming out of the cycle. I, I don't believe that the COVID-19 cycle ends until there's a, there's a vaccine. Uh, we're already seeing second waves in, in different parts of Asia, in, in, in China as well. The Chinese government, of course, is blaming this on people coming back to China, either foreigners or Chinese. But it seems likely that there's been underreporting, so it seems likely that there'll be other waves. People forget that actually the, the, the whole question of, of this, this COVID-19 cycle, the only reason we're getting flattening of the curves is because we're all locked indoors, wearing masks and staying away from each other. Any form of return to normalcy will involve greater human interaction, which will involve an increase in infection rates. So I, 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 don't think, I don't think we're out of China yet. In other words, there's almost no safe haven until we have a vaccine. So two different things. One is what's safe for um, humans who want to live in a particular place. And the second is investment. I, I didn't quite get to the answer to your question because I was creating my usual precursors, preconditions for answering. The answer is yes, I've been looking at companies like Tencent and Baba for investment, but that's principally companies that are quoted overseas. So I'm reasonably sure about being able to trade. And it's large companies where we have enough access to understanding what they do and how they do it. So it's relatively easy to judge them. Or even then, it's, I would suggest that we don't really know anything about those companies. So yes, I started to look at investment in those areas. And if you look, look at how they've done, the shares actually haven't come down in terms of public market shares. They actually haven't come down as much as you might expect. If you look at the falls in, in some of the American stocks, the Chinese stocks, the, the top Chinese stocks simply haven't fallen as much. So again, you question why. The government isn't above buying shares to support its own market and its own company. So there, there, is, there is this element of lack of transparency in both public and private market for uh, investment, private, public and private markets for investment in China. And so it's, you know, it's always going to be tough. It's always going to be. So therefore, the short answer to your question is no, it's not safe. Do you think that China will suffer less economically than some other countries because it got on top of this quickly? Because it depends to a degree upon foreign consumption and because the manner in which it has dealt with the crisis affects people's perceptions of China, that foreign consumption may change. It's one of the questions we all have about what happens when we get out of this. What are people's attitudes to China going to be? Because they've tried to shift a lot of the consumption to internal consumption, that makes them, relatively speaking, less dependent upon foreign abuse of, of Chinese production. So that side of the economy should do better. Yes, they, they're harsher on crackdowns, and there's been some criticism of the fact that everybody has to carry this little app which tracks them where they go and tracks who they meet so that the government knows whether they've done anything high risk, which are elements which actually are starting to be talked about in the West, but are generally presumed to be not acceptable to Western, Western cultures. The harshness and, and of the treatment of the areas that came under the virus notwithstanding, yes, I think China's probably going to do a better job of managing um, the infections and therefore probably do okay coming out. But as I said, we're 18 months away minimum from a vaccine. That means nothing goes back to normal. It has to change. Um, economies and companies and ecosystems that want to keep um, transacting have to adjust the way they transact, which may not be a bad thing. It's uh, A lot of people have started to talk about how this has become a big push for those companies not already online to try and do so. And so that side of it's not a bad thing. And do you think China's better able in the... So I don't know when the vaccine comes, but do you think in the period up to vaccination or the availability of a vaccine, China is better able to manage in this sort of, you know, in unstable 
interim period? So uh, I'd separate out period from China's ability to manage. Ch the Chinese companies are extraordinarily competitive and extraordinarily able and extraordinarily, extraordinarily um, nimble. So when it comes to adjusting business models or adjusting um, supply chains or adjusting um, customer interaction processes, there's, there's really no one faster. There's no business culture on the planet currently faster than the Chinese and better at adjusting. So from that perspective, they'll, they'll weather almost any shock better than most Western companies. This didn't used to be the case. The, the Americans used to be the best at this, say, a generation ago, but um, the Chinese are definitely um, strong at that now. So yes, I think they'll probably do fine in many respects. One of the reasons that I was excited by China in the um, noughties, the early 2000s, was the degree of innovation I saw in places like the Western provinces for telecommunications, because there was so little money out there, and yet the companies were trying to create an infrastructure and an ecosystem for transactions on telephones. So they had to produce systems that worked on very, very little. And the innovation in early telecommunications technology at the time is part of what's driven their success with Huawei and others recently. So yeah, they, they will do well. They'll do fine. Um, the more interesting question is whether we in the West will trust what they produce and therefore continue to purchase um, with the same alacrity as we have done in the past. That's a question. That's an open question. So just leaving that question for now, do you think that this is that the pandemic will bring forward the moment at which China overtakes the US to become the largest economy in the world? China was always going to become the largest economy in the world by dint of its sheer size, right? So with 1.4 billion people, it's, it was always going to pass a country that was 300 million people at some point. Um, does it speed it up? It depends on how you measure it, I guess. They're growing, obviously, at a faster rate than anybody has, even slowing down to 6%. That's double anybody else's speed by far. So I think, I think I'm, I'm not sure COVID-19 makes a material difference to that. The short-term the, the short slowdown of the West, yes, creates issues for certain sectors, but not everywhere. So I don't, I don't think it's material. I think China was always going to end up being the largest relatively quickly. And I don't think this materially changes it. I, I, would, I would, again add a corollary, which is uh, bigger isn't necessarily best, bigger isn't necessarily strongest. Uh, I remember um, in the 1980s, people were afraid that Japan was going to be the biggest, strongest economy in the world and that it would dominate um, the global ecosystem. Um, I remember books being written about the danger of Japanese dominance of business environment at that time. And look what happened. So let's see, let's see how they do what they do. And I think that will, to an effect, to a degree, affect how everybody else receives them. But there's no question they'll be the biggest very soon, just in terms of size. And then just to dive a bit into this notion of external perceptions of China, how do you think they are faring and how do you think they will change post-pandemic? Because on the one hand, you know, China was seen as getting on top of this very quickly. They're, they're, if you like, the consumer of last resort, they've been providing aid and PPE equipment all over the world to countries that couldn't otherwise source them. So that's the sort of, you know, if you like, that's the positive um, part of the, of the post-pandemic perception. But then on the negative side, you know, people see them as the source of this virus. They see them as having covered up the extent of the virus, at least initially. So where do you think, you know, net-net we end up post-crisis in our views of China? I, I think the... Largest problem, the largest challenge for China is its own insecurity about what other people say, what other people say about it. The, the Chinese government 
representatives at almost every level are particularly thin-skinned when it comes to criticism. And that tends to mean they overreact. And they, they overreact in ways that we, we might consider surprising for uh, the biggest guy in the room. And until they themselves feel a sense of confidence about their place in the world and how about how they um, um, can be received, I think they'll continually misstep or misjudge important reactions, and we will therefore always find them slightly off-putting. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily changed. There's been, as you, as implied in your question, we've seen that mix. They had the capacity to construct and build and react. They had the capacity to supply us with things we need. And although we have poor quality goods coming out of China, we also have very high quality goods coming out of China. It's just a question of making sure you choose your supplier correctly and, and, and manage quality control. So you, you can get wonderful quality goods coming out of China. Um, as you said, though, we're concerned about what we've been told. We're concerned about how certain things were managed. We in the West have seen um, video reporting on Twitter, which people in China have not been able to see about what the lockdown was really like in Wuhan. And that, you know, that, that, that simply maintains our concern about the way the country is governed. So I don't, I don't think anything's changed from this. The, the, the same two sides, the, the capacity to do good and produce fabulous equipment, gear, products and services remains. But the insecurity on the part of the governing group and their overreaction to criticism and their style of management of crisis because it doesn't necessarily fit with what we consider to be appropriate, um, will continue to encourage us to consider China with both those sets of lenses separately and in parallel. And what do you think happens to US-China relations? Because they were already pretty tense in the run-up to the pandemic. You know, we had an escalating trade war and, you know, a worsening sort of narrative. How does the, the pandemic positively or negatively affect US? China relations? Uh, well, again, because China was the big kid entering the playground, there was always going to be some tension, right? The previous big kid, the United States, suddenly finds someone that's um, twice his or her size and acting differently, not just a question of um, being larger, but their interaction in the playground has been different to everybody else. So the cultural shocks were always going to create a problem. And of course, you know, the fact that they're bigger and the fact that they're going to wield larger sticks means that everybody gets nervous. So this, this, this conflict was always going to happen. It isn't just a question of current leadership. Having said that, leadership can make it better. And on both sides, at least when it comes to the US and China, specifically as opposed to the West and China, we have leaders who are happy to blame the other side for something, both arguably thin-skinned, both unhappy with a hint of criticism, and that doesn't help. So I think good leadership, leadership of the type we've sometimes seen in Europe with Angela Merkel and others, I think would help matters. So let's see what happens over the coming years. But it, the, the current situation has certainly not made it better. I'm not sure it's made it a, a lot worse. I, I mean, you know, even if we had a, a more able politician, a more able diplomat, I should say, not politician, a more able diplomat on, on either side, whether in the US or in, in, in Asia, it might have been better handled and, and things might be smoother. So I'm looking forward to that as, as leadership changes, but that isn't going to happen immediately. And for the time being, it's going to be awkward. To counter that, of course, is the interdependency. The United States still uh, manufactures a huge amount or subcontracts or directly manufactures a huge amount in China. 
And, and even though China has done its very best to switch economic dependency on to local consumption, they still have a need for overseas customers. And I think that interdependency is a basis for, uh, for trying to create a relationship that works. It's one of the reasons people try to create Europe after the Second World War. Having an interdependent economy means you're less likely to go to war with someone um, if you're genuinely interdependent. And do, but do you think some of those interdependencies will diminish? Because you know, I think we all benefited from having these just-in-time supply chains, these these geographically uh, dispersed supply chains, because it meant that the cost of goods uh, went down. But I think what we found is those supply chains are very fragile in the face of a shock. So do you think some of those interdependencies would just naturally be rolled back as we seek to make supply chains more resilient? And again, the answer is in the question. You ask very good questions, which provide their own answers. They're, they're not good questions then, right? <laughs> well, people are, people are certainly beginning to realize the risks of relying upon others in difficult times. And, and the risk of trying to get access to something when you need it in a hurry, when a normal supply chain takes three weeks and you need it in two days. So those sorts of things are becoming are coming to the fore. Those concerns are coming to the fore at a time like this. But the answer isn't to decouple completely and roll globalization backwards, as some people would prefer. The solution is to build redundancy into the supply chains. Right? So you, you need to make sure that you have more than one route to get anything that's important. By all means, you know, for economic reasons, we'll still try to go to the low-cost, high-volume, reasonable-quality producer. But we've got to assume on anything that's important that we have an alternative in the event that either we have an argument with the supplier or there's a, a need for a time frame which is shorter, which would accept, which means we could accept a higher cost. There, has, there have to be redundancy, redundant source, um, sources for supply chain. Western Europe is currently slowly trying to do this with natural gas to reduce their dependency on Russia. It's, it's an issue in a lot of things around the world. But yes, COVID-19, particularly on medical supplies, has made it uh, a more acute, obvious challenge for specifically medical issues. Um, but remember that these trends have been happening for a while, partly that things like Trump's bring industry back home stuff, but, but also, also in Europe, as people have realized the challenges of trying to maintain quality control in, in, you know, in North Africa and Eastern Europe, not just China. So there has been a slight trend to think about whether we want to produce everything halfway around the planet. Um, and what happens when we can't get it when we need it? So, what, and so, the, so you're involved with lots of different companies as as board member, advisor, investor. What are you telling the companies that you're speaking to every day? What, how do you think they should best plan and adjust for this crisis? It depends on where. Uh, I tend to be involved in in media and or consumer tech and or to a lesser degree, arts and creative industries companies. So for most of those companies, the, the, big, the big thing that, that's happening right now is, is pushing to get digital faster, uh, especially if they were traditional media companies. Yeah. Um, it's very, very hard to get newspaper and a magazine and book companies to do more online. Uh, well, when you have no bookstores on, or your distribution methods are, are constrained and, and people are stuck in their homes, then, then online is the only place to find them. So that's been a really, really um, quite interesting portion. So resistant management teams are finally saying, okay, um, we, have to, well, we have time to do this because um, our other methods of reaching our customers simply aren't working. So that's a big plus. I think there's, a, there's going to be a, um, a real push in some areas to do more stuff online and therefore to understand how it is one attracts people online and keeps people online. Um, it isn't the same thing when you walk down a street. Once you've walked into a store, you tend to spend 10 minutes there um, 
because it's hard to visit 20 stores in a day. Online, you're a click away from changing. So um, people are realizing that attention spans, you just simply don't have 10 minutes to grab someone's attention. You've got seconds. And that changes the, the way people think. This crisis is the crisis that will accelerate the transition to, to a more mature uh, entrepreneurial economy or digital economy or whatever you want to call it. Call it. Um, that's what crises do. There's something that's already happening, a trend that's headed into a certain direction, but it goes at a slow, slow pace until a crisis happens and the crisis accelerates the pace, hastens the pace. And we still go in the same direction, which is a more digital economy. Some countries seizing it as an opportunity, other countries um, missing the mark and sliding, sliding down in terms of economic development. Like everyone interested in long-term change, I'm thrilled by the acceleration that the crisis provides. I'm terrified by the consequences on the short term and uh, all the people suffering and dying. But I think it creates an opportunity for every nation to accelerate the transition to a new paradigm. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.